SiriusXM presents Stanford Pathfinders. Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries. And they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world. We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that, the worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond. Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland. It's a place where people look to the future, not to the past, where they don't rest on their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward. Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. Adventure capitalist and author. Started a company at the height of the internet bubble that made the world's first digital picture frames, and that company got bought by Kodak. A lecturer in management. Lecturers are actually used throughout Stanford uh, in all those schools, oftentimes when people bring complementary skill sets that uh, can work in conjunction oftentimes with faculty members who are tenure line. This week on Stanford Pathfinders, Robert Siegel. Now, here's your host, Howard Wolf. Business books are a dime a dozen. Put the word business into Amazon and you find over 70,000 titles. And they run the gamut from self-help to super technical and everything in between. So when I'm presented with yet another business book, I I tend to pass. There's only so much time in the day. But every so often, a business book catches my fancy. And that is the case for the brain's and Braun Company, how leading organizations blend the best of digital and physical, as it makes a compelling case for marrying the best of the bricks and mortar world with the digital world. Today's guest on Stanford Pathfinders, Rob Siegel, is the author of The Brains and Braun Company, and is a bit of a legend at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, as he is a lecturer beloved by his students. He's also a venture capitalist and author husband and a father. I can only imagine what he will add to his resume in the coming years. Rob, welcome to the show. Howard, thanks so much for having me. I always like to ask the same question to start, and that is, what is your Stanford origin story and why Stanford for an MBA? And the most important question, or part of this question is this, how tough it was it for a Cal Bear to elect Stanford for grad school? Okay, well, I'll start with the Stanford origin story. I, like many people on the planet, applied as an undergrad and didn't get in. I'm pretty sure my rejection letter said that I was ugly and my mother dressed me funny. Actually, if that wasn't in the letter, at least that's how I interpreted it. But I was lucky enough to go to Cal uh, and then eventually uh, came back to Stanford to get my MBA, where I graduated in 94. You know, at the time, I was in the tech industry, and the tech industry was much more provincial and smaller in the days. And I had a, was blessed to have the choice between Harvard and Stanford and chose Stanford because, you know, in the middle of Silicon Valley in the heart of tech. And so it kind of really was almost a no brainer that while, you know, it would have been great to go to the East coast. I knew that I wanted to stay in the tech industry and Stanford was kind of, you know, smack dab in the middle of it. And the GSB was really kind of just kind of taking it to the next level at that time. So I kind of got lucky was in the right place at the right time. And, you know, in terms of, how tough was it for Cal to a Cal alum to select 
Stanford. Actually, it wasn't that hard. I kind of look at this a little bit differently. Now, Howard, if I remember correctly, you graduated in 1980. Is that right? That's correct. So I actually, I'm twice as blessed as you, Howard, because you got to go to the the greatest private university in the world. And so did I, but I also got to go to the greatest public university in the world. So I figure I'm just twice as lucky that I got to go to the two best universities on the planet. I love it. I love it. All right. So I, I shared with the listeners in the um, introduction, a little bit about your background. You are like this ultimate Renaissance man. So walk us through your career path. You get out of the GSB and you go into the tech world. So I had worked in the software industry actually as an undergrad at Cal and worked my way through school. Uh, And eventually that company that I worked for uh, went public just about the time that I went to the GSB. And then when I graduated from Stanford, I went to work for Intel. One of my teachers uh, was Andy Grove, the former CEO of Intel. He co-taught a class with Professor Robert Bergelman at the GSB. And so I went to work in what was the predecessor of Intel Capital, uh, corporate business development. We were Andy's group of weirdos. You know, I had hair at the time and it was long and we were the people trying to push Intel into its zone of discomfort. I uh, did that for a while, then became a product manager at Intel. Uh, then I started a company at the height of the internet bubble that made the world's first digital picture frames. And that company got bought by Kodak, worked for an image sensor company that was actually spun out of a boss El Gamal's lab in the engineering school. And that company got bought by Sony. Uh, I actually then moved to Southern California and ran a division of GE for a number of years. Uh, and then about at that time, after doing that for three years, uh, came back to Silicon Valley and became a venture capitalist. And at that time, I started teaching at the GSB uh, and then kind of like the two kind of paths just kind of kept going in parallel where, you know, uh, was funding deals at a small seed uh, firm called Exceed Capital, where I was a partner, and then increasingly teaching more and more classes at the GSB over the last 10 to 15 years. All right. So let's let's share that with the listeners. So. Um, there are many elements of the special sauce that makes the graduate school of business at Stanford so exemplary. And one of those is the way that they use lectures. So what is the difference between you as a lecturer and a full-fledged professor, faculty member at the business school? When one is becoming a professor at an academic research institution like Stanford, there's a path and a process for that. You know, generally one will get a PhD, you'll then get a, a professorial position somewhere and you're working to get tenure through often peer-reviewed academic publications and papers. Lecturers are used differently. Lecturers are actually used throughout Stanford uh, in all those schools, oftentimes when people bring complementary skill sets that uh, can work in conjunction oftentimes with faculty members who are tenure line. So the tenure line faculty, as they move up and continue to do more research uh, and, they, and they teach as they, they do their research in the classroom, they will oftentimes bring in practitioners to augment and to help implement and explain how a lot of the research can be applied in the commercial world. So in the case of the, the GSB. So I started teaching with Robert Bergelman uh, about 15, 16 years ago. Uh, and so I have now co-taught with four different tenure line faculty members in different courses where my experience as an operator or somebody who ran businesses, worked in both very large and very small companies, is able to work with world-class researchers where hopefully we can show how the research that they do actually applies in a commercial setting. And you can kind of see that symbiotic relationship to see how the the two skill sets are complementary and trying to help the students be successful that when they leave us, they'll be able to learn both from the researchers as well as the practitioners. So is one way to think about this that that the faculty are sort of theoretical and you guys are practical pragmatic? I don't know that I would describe it exactly that way. I would say that 
I'm a practitioner who actually is bald and my beard is gray from all the mistakes that I made running companies, the faculty will often study the underlying causes. It can be anything from finance to accounting, to marketing, to strategy, to organizational behavior. And they'll look at a wide variety of companies and look for trends and patterns and data and frameworks. And so you try to kind of marry kind of what I'll describe as the big picture uh, with somebody who's actually maybe been in the trenches on the implementation side. So I don't know that I would call it practical versus theoretical, but I would maybe more refer to it as complementary skill sets. Got it. Got it. So you can't be the head of alumni relations at Stanford University without knowing a lot of people in the venture capital industry. But if there's one thing that they all have in common is that they work seemingly 24-7. That is an endless job. You're looking at pitches, you're, you know, you're networking, you're doing that. So how in the world does someone who has a full-time job as a venture guy find the time to do this side gig at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford? I mean, I, I'm kind of in awe. And then, then we're going to talk in a little bit about your book. So I don't even know how you get time to even sleep if you're doing those first two jobs, no less the book. So how do you do all that? Uh, basically, I'm the most boring man alive. Like, all I do is work, right? So, so my life has been built around um, basically two full-time jobs. I'm a full-time member of the GSB faculty, and I'm also a full-time venture capitalist. And so what I found in the, the early days when I started doing this is there was a symbiotic relationship that, you know, a lot of the students, if they were starting companies, I would be helping them as they, if they were taking courses. And sometimes I, after they graduated, might end up funding their companies. And then many of the masters of the universe who come to my courses when I write cases or, you know, some of the people that are in the book, you know, those companies become the strategic relationships for the portfolio company. But so I wouldn't say that there was, there. I often just said that I have no balance in my life, but I have a hundred percent integration. So, you know, basically my work as a venture capitalist, you know, applies to like my entrepreneurial finance course and my work as a teacher also allows me to kind of hopefully be a decent coach as a VC. Uh, and so I think that, that that's really kind of how it all fits together. And uh, Fundamentally, Debbie, my wife and I, we've also built our social life around Stanford. You know, we travel with the students on global study trips. We spend a lot of time with the students, you know, at small group dinners and the like. So it's kind of become an all-encompass seven days a week, 24 hours a day experience. So let's talk a little bit about the students at the Graduate School of Business. Um, as I think most listeners will know, it is the most difficult business school to get into in the world. I know this firsthand because I got denied when I applied to get a business school. I could not get into Stanford's graduate school business. It worked out fine for me. I went to Harvard Business School. I met my wife one row down, three seats over in my first year section. So all worked out well for me, but this is a brutally difficult place to get into. Describe what these GSB students are all about. What makes them tip? What makes them special? What motivates them? Give us a sense as a lecturer at the business school for the students that populate that MBA program. When I think about how it's changed since I graduated in 1994, I think there are a few key things that are fundamentally different over the last almost three decades. The first is the student body is much more global and much more diverse than it was when I was a student. You know, you see, when I'm standing in front of the room, it's like teaching at the United Nations. You see every continent represented, you see every ethnicity represented, every gender represented. And so it's a far more diverse group of students. Secondly, I think the students 
um, have a much stronger sense of wanting to do good and do well. And they're all fiercely ambitious and they're all fiercely competitive. They wouldn't have been that way. Uh, they wouldn't have gotten to Stanford if they weren't that way. But I think what we see with the students today, and especially Stanford versus other business schools, is there's you know there's a, a strong push on principled leadership. There's a strong push on kind of the bigger you know social goals or, and and social responsibility that companies have. Whether that is you know trying to think about you know stakeholders versus shareholders, or even just thinking about you know international dynamics and how the business world fits into that. So the students are brilliant. They're lovely. Um, they're smart. Uh, and they've got a lot going on. There's a lot in their lives that, you know, between some of them are working on startups. Some of them are working on, on, on clubs that can be very active. And then they have their academic work. So it's, it, it's changed a lot, but it's a really special place to be. It's a very vibrant and alive place. So it's so interesting to hear you talk about business school students who want to do good. Because when I went to business school, business school students wanted to do good for themselves. You're saying do good for the world. I think that there is a much broader sense, I think with the younger generation, uh, they're far more aware of social issues, diversity issues, et cetera, uh, but also what's their role gonna be in society. And I think, you know, it's funny, the 20th century was shaped by what I'll call political ideological conflict, right? You know, fascism versus Western democracy, then communism versus Western democracy. If you look at the 21st century, what we're seeing is that it's economic philosophy and economic ideology that is shaping global conflict. And so the students that we deal with today in a world that's increasingly connected, in a world that's increasingly collaborative, are trying to figure out how are they going to navigate through these, you know, situations where governments and national interests, you know, become increasingly important and businesses are at the center of it. And so they're going to have to figure out like very few companies, you know, where our students are going to graduate to are going to stay, you know, in a small community or are going to stay in a small area. Because even if it's a small number of employees, you're going to be connected all over the world. And so the students are having to be aware of these, these issues at a much deeper level than you and I had to when we went to graduate school. So at the same time, notwithstanding the fact that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of students every year apply to go to graduate school business at Stanford, and a very small percentage get in, there's much talk about the MBA being a dying degree. And, and I hear this all over the place these days. You've seen numbers of, of students applying, maybe not during COVID. COVID was a different story because the economy faltered and always we see um, applications swing up when the economy is in decline. But at the same time, the, the cost of an MBA is tremendous. The opportunity cost of leaving your job, the kind of job that would get you into a high-level business school is, is significant. And um, there's talk about maybe it doesn't need to be two years, maybe it could be one year, does it really need to be in person, maybe it could be virtual. Talk to me about, and talk to us, the listeners, about whether or not the MBA degree is a vibrant degree or a dying degree. So I'm going to argue it's a vibrant degree, but it's a going through a radical transformation. Okay. And so I think we had oversupply of MBA programs that were undifferentiated. And so starting, say, five, six, seven years ago, we started seeing declining enrollments at, at maybe the second and third tier schools. And eventually, I remember Garth Saloner, the former dean, talking about that we had to assume that eventually that was going to reach our shores. And that started to happen, you know, even in kind of the year before the pandemic. And so I think that, that people are asking, is this worth it? I think that there are a couple of things that, that are not true. The first is the conventional wisdom that the degree is not worth it. You know, you can find some of the what I'll call blocking and tackling uh, skills on the internet on like, for example, how do you use 
certain tools in product management or how do you, you know, there's certain things about fundraising that you can learn online or certain things about strategy online. But, and so that's, I think, going to take away in the oversupply of programs. But what's going to happen is if you look at a place like Stanford, where it's not only the network that you join with the 400 and some odd students you join, but it's the 26,000 alumni who have been there before you. And it's the alumni who will come after you. You you have to look at the MBA as a holistic investment in yourself, right? You know, you learn about leadership skills, you learn academically new skills and talents, and you also learn about your role, you know, kind of in your in your business, in your country, in your community. And so, and how do you interact also with the network? So I would argue that the MBA is very, very relevant, though you're going to have basically fewer programs going forward. I think one of the things you also talked about it being in person versus virtual is I think that's the wrong way to perhaps frame the, the, the challenge. I think it's about, and not, or, I mean, I've seen, you know, I've now taught eight courses either virtually over zoom or in hybrid fashion where I had 30 some odd students in the classroom and 45 online. I have done virtual teaching throughout Riyadh, Rio de Janeiro, uh, Frankfurt, Chicago, like you name a part of the world in the last 15 months, I have delivered an academic program uh, to to people all over the world. And I think what's going to happen is the community, the virtual side of it is going to be about reach for the people who don't have the opportunity uh, to come. And you're also going to be able to, you know, to, for executive education, that'll allow us as a university to be able to touch more people in the world and kind of diffuse knowledge out there. But there is something about being in the classroom that is still very magical. Like when we got back in the classroom in the spring quarter, it was like, you know, manna from heaven. It was just awesome. And all of a sudden, you know, you could actually have some of those interactions with students. You can read body language. You can see when somebody's really confused or when they're angry with you or they're laughing at your jokes or they're rolling their eyes at your stupid, horrible dad joke. You know, there, there's something about being together and being in person. We're a social species. So, you know, I think the long, the long and short of it, Howard, is it's going to be about and. I think we're going to be able to use technology to increase our reach. But, you know, for especially for selected programs at a place like Stanford, as long as we maintain relevancy, as long as we continue to evolve the curriculum, as long as we can continue to touch this generation where they need to be touched, then I think we're going to be fine over time. All right. So let's transition to the book. When I speak about the book, I talked about it in the introduction. The Brains and Brawn Company, how leading organizations blend the best of digital and physical. So we've already stipulated that you're ridiculously busy. You have a full-time job as a venture capitalist. You have a full-time job as a lecturer at one of the foremost graduate schools of business in the world. And as if that's not enough, you decide to write a book. What made you write this book? Well, I was actually kind of uh, abused by one of my co-teachers, Jeff Immelt, my old boss at GE, who kept telling me that I had to write the book or he was going to stop teaching with me, which is only a little bit tongue-in-cheek. The idea behind the book is two of the courses that I teach. One's called The Industrialist Dilemma and one's called Systems Leadership. And The Industrialist Dilemma looks in a world where everything is connected. Like There are no unconnected products. How you develop products, how you organize your company is changed in a world that blends digital and physical. And we've been teaching this course for the last seven years. We've had leaders from disruptors and Silicon Valley kind of, you know, leading companies like Lyft and Instacart, as well as leaders from old line industrial companies like John Deere and Caterpillar, uh, and even healthcare companies come and talk about how their their companies are being changed by the blend of digital and physical. And with 
with my class with Jeff, the systems leadership class, uh, that course looks at the leadership skills that are required and how do we as leaders need to change in a world that blends digital and physical. And so Jeff was pushing me to write the book basically to kind of codify the frameworks and everything that we had learned in these two courses over the last seven plus years. And so finally, you know, he just was kind of just kept on me, right? Like any old boss is going to do, just going to keep on me and keep pestering me. So finally I decided I really should write the book. And so you know, with a pandemic, I couldn't leave my house. So basically that's what I spent most of last summer and the fall working on. This is Stanford Pathfinders, I'm Howard Wolf. More with venture capitalist, author, and Stanford Business School lecturer, Rob Siegel, coming soon. This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf and I'm speaking with venture capitalist, author, and Stanford Business School lecturer, Rob Siegel. So let's dig a little deeper into the thesis of the book. As I read about the book, it seems to be a, um, a declaration on your part that digital only isn't the answer. It's the melding of digital and analog or bricks and mortar, whatever you want to call it. Talk to us a little bit about that. So I think there are th three key messages in the book. The first, as you said, is that, that going forward, products and services are going to blend both digital and physical. And we see it in every industry from education. I mentioned healthcare, financial services, mobility. There isn't an industry where products and services are not connected. Uh, the second lesson is that incumbents are not doomed and disruptors are not ordained. And when we started, we thought, okay, Silicon Valley is going to come in. We've been talking, you know, and uh, Mark Andreessen talks about how software is eating the world. And that's, you know, the Silicon Valley is going to take over. And when we started the Industrialist Dilemma class, this is some of what we thought we would see. We'd see some incumbents largely struggling, and we'd see these new disruptors coming in. And very quickly, we learned as we studied these companies that the best companies in both, in both types of organizations were learning from each other. Like the incumbents were adapting their, their product development techniques, you know, in, in, applying capabilities, changing how they organize their companies. And the disruptors who were being the most successful were actually learning from the incumbents, learning the skill sets that it might have been built over decades or even over 100 years in some of the companies we studied and bringing that into some of the, the capabilities that happens when you've got a digital foundation. And so that was, I think, the first big aha was that the best companies, the winners were doing both. And that the second part being is that, that really... The the companies that executed well on both digital and physical would be the winners. And the third thing we learned was that it really takes a new types of leadership, that when everything's connected, you can't just kind of like rise up through a function in an organization, be it engineering or manufacturing or marketing or sales, and assume that your teammates will take care of other things. You really need to simultaneously see the whole system. You need to understand how your company, different functions interact with each other and what happens when they do interact. What happens when your company interacts with other companies in its ecosystem? system. Because as everything is connected, you see that there's a lot of data that flows back and forth. And, and what you find is that everybody ends up impacting each other, you know, the channel, the customer itself, and you have constant frequent communication that will change how you develop products and the speed with which you respond. And you have to have a particular set of leadership skills. And so we saw those were kind of some of the key things that the best leaders we had were different types of leaders on a go forward basis than maybe we studied 20 years ago. So as you tell this story and you share this thesis, it reminds me of a former Stanford Pathfinders guest, Chip Conley, who, um, an MBA from Stanford's Graduate School of Business and undergraduate, who started the Joie de Vivre hotel chain, sold it, and then became sort of a mentor to, and then ultimately an EVP of hospitality at Airbnb. And he tells the exact same story. He said, he said, I understood the hotel business. They didn't have a clue about the hotel business 
they understood technology. I didn't understand technology. We brought my sensibilities of what it means to be, to provide a space that is hospitable. And we brought that to the digital world of Airbnb. Is this what you're talking about? Very similar. Yes. And, and the book tries to give, you know, what I call the, the brains and brawn framework. There are 10 variables, five digital and five physical that people can look at and actually evaluate their company to see how they're doing on these 10 variables. So for example, the brain side, the digital side, number one is analytics. You know, how well does your company deal with analytics? And surprisingly, what we learned is it's not just your technical capabilities, but it's the human side of how you use analytics. The right hemisphere, how well does your company handle creativity and how do you embrace creativity? Can you combine a good technological innovation with a good business model innovation? We look at the amygdala. How well do you deal with empathy? You know, and actually we studied Kaiser Permanente and their former leader, Bernard Tyson, about how he tried to put himself in the shoes of all of the people that were a part of, you know, his company and his constituency. We also look at the prefrontal cortex. How well do you manage risk? And then finally, the inner ear. How do you balance what you own and where your partner? And then on the physical side, we also saw five attributes, the brawny attributes, the spine, you know, how well do you do logistics? Hands, the craft of making things and manufacturing. Muscles, can you operate globally, both, you know, in your area and in your region, but can you operate all over the world? Uh, we looked at finally, uh, you know, how well, you know, your hand-eye coordination, can you shape and drive your ecosystem? And finally, stamina, can you survive over time? And we looked at specific companies in each of those 10 areas and looked at best practices. And that was, I think, the key takeaway for us is you can actually go and rate your company on a one to 10 scale on these 10 attributes and give your company a score and figure out where you're excelling and where maybe do you need to improve. So give us a couple of examples of companies that are just hitting the ball out of the park on both the brain and the bronze side of things. Well, I think the most obvious example is going to be Amazon, right? You look at Amazon and they do just a such a phenomenal job in how they, not only what we shop and buy online, but also, you know, with Amazon Prime, the delivery and the operation systems that go with it. In the retail space, actually, we studied three companies that have done a very good job at both Brains and Braun. We looked spe specifically at Best Buy, Home Depot, and Target, all companies that you would have thought would have gone out of business because of the retail apocalypse, but yet because they blend digital and physical the right way, they've done a great job. We looked at, you know, some a company like Align Technology, which makes the uh, clear plastic aligners used for teeth straightening, which is an unbelievable use of 3D uh, manufacturing, 3D product manufacturing, as well as digitization for moving people's teeth and mouths. Um, we looked at companies like Johnson & Johnson and how they survived over time, over 100 plus years, and how kind of the notion of the credo has helped them get through challenging times. So the great thing about being at Stanford is we get to look at, you know, disruptors, even, you know, companies like Instacart, which is a company we looked at in the, in the book, as well as um, what I'll call older line companies, whether it's AB InBev or even Samsung you know, and how they're handling these transformations of blending digital and physical. So, you know, it's really been neat to kind of see a wide variety of companies based from all over the world really do a good job when they try to excel on these 10 different variables. Biggest surprise in writing this book? How hard it is. It was so hard. This is the, one of the hardest things I've ever done. I tend to speak with a colloquial nature, but I don't write that way. And so therefore the first drafts of the book I did were really boring and nobody was interested. And so I had to kind of learn how to, I have such respect for people who write books. This is really hard. <laughs> is this the last book you'll write or do you think there'll be more books in your future? 
I have no idea. Kind of one day at a time. I'm trying to make sure this one gets out and see if anybody likes it. I know my mom's going to buy a copy, um, you know, so that's good. But, you know, we'll see what if I have anything that hopefully people would find of interest uh, in the future. Fantastic. Rob, thank you so much for being on the show. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I highly recommend the Brains and Brawn Company to our listeners. And um, thank you for all you do for these generations of Stanford Graduate School of Business students. They're lucky to have you as their professor. Uh, thanks, uh, Howard. The privilege is mine. Thank you for listening to Stanford Pathfinders on SiriusXM. Listen to this and other episodes anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app or wherever you find your podcasts.